there are few decades in film history that have been as scrutinized as the 1980s. But to really understand the decade and its movies, it's going to take a couple someones who were there for it the first time around. Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg are ready to review every major film of the decade one month at a time. They'll look at what worked then, what endures now, and how it felt to be there when it all went down. Turn back the calendar with us. It's the 80s all over. The year kicked off with a milestone when Wilson Good was sworn in as Philadelphia's first black mayor. Pop culture started to look a lot more 80s. Night Court debuted on NBC. Van Halen released their single biggest album, 1984. Madonna appeared on American Bandstand to sing Holiday. And John Lennon's posthumous single, Nobody Told Me, climbed the charts in America while shameless hippies Paul and Linda McCartney were arrested in Barbados for possession of marijuana. Sarah Peller's Where's the Beef Lady appeared in her very first commercial, and America lost its damn fool mind for her. Speaking of commercials. On January 24th, Apple Computer will introduce Macintosh, and you'll see why 1984 won't be like 1984. Apple released a Macintosh personal computer tied to the single greatest commercial in television history, directed by the legendary Ridley Scott. And finally... In a decision that had a huge impact on both young Drew McQueenie and young Scott Weinberg, the Supreme Court ruled that home VCRs were allowed to tape TV programs without any violation of federal copyright law, allowing the movie Orgy to commence in January of 1984. Hi, everybody. I'm Drew McQueenie, and welcome to the fifth season of 80s All Over, where I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Weinberg. Scott, what's up, man? All right. You know, you, you're so excited that we're done 1983. You just, and I hate to warn our listeners that although 1984 is a fantastic year in many ways, I'm here to tell you that January 1984, with a few shining exceptions, not a very good month. <laughs> Drew. What? Say oops upside your head. Say oops upside your head. Say oops. Uh, we did indeed make a very small mistake. Uh, we got uh, music video. Michael Jackson music video directors uh, inverted here. Uh, Steve Barron directed Billy Jean. Bob Giraldi was the guy who directed Beat It. And we will get to Bob Giraldi's feature directing debut a little later in the decade. Uh, Steve Barron did not get around to it until the 90s, so we'll talk about him some other time. Sorry about that, guys. I, I just got my Michael Jackson director's switch. Mini boner on the boner. Steve Barron to direct a movie that comes out next year. Or this year, Electric Dreams? Uh, that's right, Steve. I'm, and we will talk about uh, Steve Barron's film, which uh, is a very 1984 movie. But, Scott, let's kick off this year with a movie that feels like the 80s really have gotten underway. You know that one of our patron saints of this podcast, one of our inspirations, one of our 80s icons is, of course, Eddie Deason. Wow. Wow. So Yes, I do. I say to you. We love Eddie Deason in small parts in Greece in 1941. And what would it be like if Eddie Deason had a 
starring role in a film. And we almost find out in the unfucking watchable Surf 2. Surf 2 takes off where airplane crashed as the surf wars continue to ravage the minds and bodies of innocent youths in their fight for a better tomorrow. I saw it on VHS, probably late 80s, did not get it. It's one of these allegedly madcap comedies. And the joke, uh, it's supposed to be a joke, is that there is no surf one. It's it's just surf two. That's a joke. And it feels to me like the movie that every trauma film is also trying to be. And I wouldn't say that it's good. It's certainly not boring. It reminds me of sort of the aesthetic of class of 1984 in some ways. It's not like real punk rock because when we'll get to films later in this decade that I think, hell, we'll get to a film in just a couple of months here that I think defines punk rock for the 80s, the real thing. This is sort of what people saw punk rock as, which is dress ugly and then run around and be horrible to people. Then there's the science experiment thing in it where Eddie Deason's the bad guy. Eddie Deason is a mad scientist who makes a poison soda that turns surfers into zombies. And, and I thought it might have struck a chord with you because it seems to be cast with a lot of then working L.A. comedians. It tries so hard and it's always doing something. And most of the time what it's doing is ugly and kind of dumb. And that's the problem is I think in trying to be outrageous, I feel like this is people who aren't particularly outrageous or crazy making an outrageous and crazy film. Yeah, it's ostensibly a satire, a spoof of teen sex comedies, but it just plays like a really broad teen sex comedy. I don't really see much satire. It has some decent music and a a very early Eric Stoltz appearance. But with with all deference and respect to patron saint Eddie Deason, I must give Surf 2 a thumbs down. I don't know where I was going with that. I don't know what... (laughs) You had me on the edge of my seat, though, man. I was ready. I was ready for you to bring it all home there. Uh, um, I, but but the weird thing is, like, this is something that back probably when I was 18 or 19, I would probably put on one of my lists of, like, the worst films ever made. I was dreading revisiting this, and it did not disappoint. It's terrible. Uh, it's terrible, but it's harmlessly terrible. Like, if I saw this on Up All Night... I would have been like, all right, and then never thought about it again. It would have been one of those. And it feels like that's what it was designed for. It was trying to be the crazy party movie. And it's just, it's not that crazy. You know what else is not crazy, Drew? (laughs) Uh, Would that be the John Cassavetes and a kid movie, Marvin and Ty? From the director of Evil Speak? Put that knife away. Just get it away. Put it in there. Get it in your pocket! Get that in your pocket! Suddenly, the most unwanted boy in the world and a man without any direction are like father and son. Well, maybe I'm your guardian angel, Ty. Maybe he is. And the only thing that could possibly come between them is a real father. Who the hell are you, anyway? What business is it of yours? You ain't gonna leave me alone with this guy, is you, Ma? Not if you don't want me. Father, I love you, man. Thank you for letting me know. Okay, so here's, I'm going to play a quick scene for you. It's John Cassavetes, and he's at home with Jenna Rollins, and the conversation goes like this. My dear wife, let me ask you something. And she says, yes, my, my dear husband, go ahead. And he says, you made Gloria. You know that film where it was you and a, and a kid? Well, it's not a question. No, you got an Oscar nomination for that, right? I did. 
Do you think I could do that? Of course, just find a kid. Dorothy Chandler Pavilion, here we come! Because it is so Gloria in the basic bones where it's a prickly person who doesn't really necessarily belong with a kid, but who is probably better for that kid in many ways than the people that were responsible. It's shameless in the way it feels like it's, I'm going to do that too, but it's also not good at all. It's very artificial. It, uh, it seems like people are just going through the motions. Uh, Billy D. Williams is not bad uh, as the kid's dad. I don't really get the, the relationship there. They don't really flesh that out very well. The, the kid is suicidal, and that's not fun. Uh, they get to the old yeller ending, which is particularly upsetting. It wants to get you in the heart. It wants to earn those beats. And Cassavetes, I'm fascinated by him as an actor because so much of what he did, he took for money to make his films. And in his films, his his work is always interesting and, and fascinating and groundbreaking in a lot of ways. I find his work in other people's movies sometimes awful. And it's weird. It's like Olivier. He's clearly a very talented, gifted actor who sometimes was dreadful. This is going to be a deep cut, but I think of John Cassavetes as a not funny Joseph Bologna. Okay. Like Joseph Bologna is kind of, uh, you know, middle of the road, you know, uh, every man, but he's funny. Uh, John Cassavetes is just like a boring next door neighbor guy. There's nothing really interesting about him. And I was for some reason had in my head that this movie had some kind of a pedigree that maybe it was an Altman film or somebody good wrote it. No, I was wrong. I was thinking of a different blank and blank movie. This is just dull. I don't know how it played theaters. It's really not good. Let's move on to an unexpectedly good film that I had never even heard of, Drew. And I have a feeling that you like this film as well. Let's talk about Deep in the Heart, a.k.a. Handgun. You can't possibly begin to understand history down here unless you know something about Colt revolvers. How come you come to know so much? They teach you this at law school? I collect antique guns. Are you trying to kill someone out here today? Remember what I told you. Don't ever point it at anything you don't want to kill. She plans it like a military exercise. Handgun. The story of an attack at gunpoint, which backfires. One of the things that we do now as we go through the series when we're putting this together is you know, we track movies down and first we track down clearly the big easy ones, the ones that we either have here or that are very easy uh, to get. Uh, Drew, I'm sorry. The big easy is nineteen. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I mean, <laughs> I see what you did there, but you know, it, it, there are certain films that, yeah, they're just here on the shelves already. There are films that didn't take a lot of work to track down. And this was one that I didn't think we were going to find. And then I was really curious what your reaction was going to be because never heard of it, had no idea what it was. I put it on one night and I found myself captivated by it. It is a strange movie. And you often say that as if a like almost a backhand compliment or a knock. But it's strange in the most interesting way. It's a British director doing a small town, Texas, America. Not all that convincingly at the start. But Karen Young, it's the, her debut. Uh, and she plays a woman who is assaulted and then goes on the journey to owning a gun. Just from the premise, I expected it to be kind of like a less exploitative, less interesting, like Miss 45. And it has threads of that, but it's much more interested in the minutia of small town America, the gun culture, the several extended sequences in gun stores and shooting ranges that you think are almost pro-gun. 
But then the film goes on and it tips the other way and back and forth in some really interesting ways. You know, it's a tough genre. And I've written about the fact that I find the use of rape as a motivator in, in exploitation films both excessive and it's a really weak thing to hang your movie on. And it's very, very difficult for me to justify giving a good review to a movie that is built around rape as a central device. It's there really are lots of things that like when a movie commits those acts, you've now crossed a certain line and you are now a certain type of film. What's really interesting about this is that it plays that line. It, when it gets to that scene, the actual rape scene is one of the most upsetting and interesting I've ever seen because it's not about the physical end of the violence. It is very much about coercion and about power. This movie's got to be called Handgun. Deep in the Heart does nothing for this film title-wise. It's Handgun is the appropriate title because in that scene, it's all about the fact that he has a handgun. And as he says to her, this means you don't have any choices to make tonight. You're absolved of responsibility. You don't have any decisions to make. You can literally relax now because none of this is your choice for the rest of the evening. That's an insane, unreal sequence. It's and really quietly upsetting. Yeah. Harrowing because suddenly the coercion and the threat and everything else feels very different than it does in movies where it's just this ratcheted up sort of noisy violence that you've seen a thousand times and that is exploitative and it's more about the nudity. This really isn't about any of that. It is about her. It's about her dealing with this guy. It's about her being assaulted. It's about her deciding whether or not she wants to defend herself with the, the very weapon that terrorized her. And that's the thing. It's, it's very much about gun culture. That scene where she goes to buy her handgun is handled almost like who is America, like a Sasha Baron Cohen segment. Because For a couple of minutes, it plays like an actual documentary, like they went into I feel a like gun it is. shop. I yeah. feel like they shot it at a gun shop. It doesn't feel like they used actors. It feels like uh, Tony Garnett, the guy who directed this, who came from a commercial background. It feels to me like he went and he said... I want her to buy a gun from you. Sell her a gun. And it was that simple as far as direction. The really sad thing about this movie is Karen Young, she went on to a career, but it was mostly a girlfriend or wife or supporting, supporting, supporting actress career. If people had seen this movie, I think that might have changed because I think she's so good in this. The movie never had a shot because Warner Brothers bought it and killed it. Because of Sudden Impact. This movie died so that Sudden Impact, Warner's giant rape revenge action Clint Eastwood movie, could dominate the December box office. This movie was owned by Warner Brothers. The reason you don't know about it is because Warner doesn't know they own it. Warner has no idea this exists. They bought it to eat it and digest it and never let you see it. So, yeah, I feel like this is a movie that would play right now in the Me Too era like a brand new film. I think it's hyper modern in a lot of ways. The way it's directed and the sensibility that the director brings to it, it is more progressive in a lot of ways than films that are being made right now. Yeah. And I can only imagine that he was both fascinated and horrified by American gun culture and is really baffled by it. So that is a look at American gun culture from the POV of an outsider. We're going to shift now to a film that is a New Zealand comedy revered by New Zealanders, according to the New Zealanders I reached out to, and virtually unknown to everyone else, uh, directed by Jeff Murphy. This is a movie called Goodbye Pork Pie. It's a different type of vehicle, but I would call this the Kiwi breaking away. It kind of has that youth and we have a vehicle and the freedom to go somewhere with our friends. And that freedom sometimes leads to dumb and stupid decisions and sometimes wonderful things. And 
It's just a, a young people on a road trip movie, and it's damn good. It's Sugarland Express with lower stakes. It's not like this guy really has any great crusade that he's on. He just kind of takes off with a car that he shouldn't have taken off with, and it sets off this chain of events when he picks up another dude, and they kind of then egg each other on, and the middle-aged guy has just had his girlfriend leave him, and now he's just sort of aimless, and this young guy comes along at the right moment, and they just kind of raise a little hell. And that's all the comedy there is. It's a goofy road trip movie. And it is distinctly New Zealand culture. And you realize that in 1981, New Zealand was was fairly rustic. Like there is a 1950s feel almost to it. Uh, it's great to go back and see like the origins of, you know, we know New Zealand now from Weta and Peter Jackson and many other filmmakers. Jeff Murphy in a couple of years would do a fantastic science fiction film called The Quiet Earth. And I'm looking forward to us getting to that one. I love homegrown hits. I love movies that you know locally, that you know in your country, that never really crossed over. But when you when they get mentioned, they get a real smile from you. And we saw that with Puberty Blues. That's a movie that I had a lot of people reach out to me and say, oh, my God, I love that movie growing up. I never thought I'd hear American people talking about it. This one is one of those that got a lot of, uh, oh, my God, I love that when we mentioned it. And uh, I certainly I can imagine what a point of pride it was to see something that was this kind of amiable and goofy and completely yours. So moving on from a charming little something, Scott, I'm going to give you the uh, the intro here. Yeah. Tell me about the power. Pray for them. They have unleashed the power. Give it to me! Makes your nightmares become reality. The power. This is a goofball, dull horror movie about idiots who find an Incan idol and it possesses them in sloppy and dreary fashion. This is the second flick from Abro and Carpenter, who gave us the pretty decent Dorm That Dripped Blood and would move on to The Kindred later in the decade. It's weird to me that the dorm, the drip blood was a, a student film that was good enough to like be acquired and distributed. And their second film is worse in almost every way. Oh, this thing is a sleeping pill, man. And that's I'm going to say that phrase a couple of times over these next three movies, because there's a reason these movies were used as glue to just kind of hold close the open wound of January that comes around every year. A lot of these movies are movies that sat on shelves and that they didn't know what to do with. And they finally just kind of went, all right, finally here. The power, it's a little tiny statue thing that if you have it, you can kill people with it, but it also kills you eventually. I know the one power it definitely has is it will bore the fuck yeah, out of I, you. I found myself fondly remembering the Tiki Idol episode of the Brady Bunch while I was watching this film. You know, with any movie, it, Evil Dead's just a book that you read and then stuff happens. It all comes down to what you do with that. And there's not one good idea in terms of what the possession does or what the monster's powers are or what he does with them or it's never interesting. It's never exciting. It's not gory in any way that's fun. So, yeah, we move on from a bad movie that I barely remembered to another bad movie I barely remembered. And this is 1984's Soul Survivor. No one can stop it. The harmony of nature has been disrupted. But if you tell them what you know, the laws of existence have been violated. <laughs> 
the retribution of tormented souls is about to be unleashed. Soul Survivor. It will never rest alone. Now, you want to talk about a sleeping pill. All right. This is about a woman who is the only survivor of a plane crash, and she sees dead people. The woman is oddly nonplussed about her situation. Feels like it was written in 1940. This movie is duller than dishwater, but for Tom Eberhardt, this was his first feature, and he would go on to direct Night of the Comet, The Night Before, and Without a Clue. Three supremely underrated films from this decade. So while uh, I don't like Soul Survivor, uh, I am pleased that it got a Vestron release and made enough money to let Tom Eberhardt direct three much better films. Did you ever see Final Destination? This is another case of you had the basic premise. You weren't far off from the people that got it right. But talk about missing the picture. This movie doesn't do anything with the concept of you survived a death. Why are you seeing the dead people? Is death coming for you? Like, they got so close to that premise and then did nothing with it. And there's a reason Soul Survivor is forgotten. I would be remiss if I didn't mention the fantastic performances from iconic actors like Anita Skinner, Karen Larkey, Daniel Cartwell, and Kirk Johnson. <laughs> All of them would go on to much bigger soap opera episodes. I, I admire the effort, but it feels like this is an audition reel for a TV movie job. Let's move on. And speaking of TV movies, if you thought Topper was too racy and newfangled, I've got a movie for you called O'Hara's Wife. Oh, uh... Uh, welcome. Uh, sit down. I understand you have an idea for me. Yeah, I made this movie, and I want to know if you'll buy it and release it in theaters, sir. It's already done. Wait. Oh, that's terrific. Great. Let me see it. Edward Asner. Hot. Is married to Marriott Hartley. Hot. Dies. Hot. And she comes back as a ghost to harangue and nag him beyond, from beyond the grave. And I got this kid, Jodie Foster. She's in it. I don't know if she's going to amount to much. The poster is Heaven Can Wait. But O'Hara's wife won't. Uh, is the kid going to end up being Ed Asner's love interest? Because if if she's Ed Asner's love interest, I'm on board. You've got a theatrical release. Because there's nothing hotter than a 20-year-old and Ed Asner while his dead wife watches. Ray Walston, Tom Bosley, Perry Lang. How is that not a TV movie? This feels like a pilot for a horrible, horrible series. And the idea that Marriott Hartley is trying to push Ed Asner to get back out there and to live his life and to, to love again and to get his heart taken care of and to, it's, we've seen a million variations on this formula. They're still priming the heaven can wait pump. That's the hook we need. Heaven and angels. Nope, 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 nope. Yeah, you want to talk, you want to talk about a leap in terms of, um, let's just say basic cinema craft. You're not going to get a bigger one than you are between these two movies. Scott, what are we doing next? We are now going to delve into Drew's art house corner with Andre Tarkovsky's Never Before on Video, Nostalgia, an unforgettably haunting film by Andre Tarkovsky, the director of the masterpieces Andre Rublev. Stalker and The Sacrifice. A Russian poet journeys to Italy on a research mission. Set in the hills of Tuscany, where the elements reign supreme, 
his life becomes entwined with his beautiful Italian interpreter and a loony local mystic. His nostalgic yearning for his Russian homeland and family is all-consuming. A film filled with unique and extraordinary cinematic moments. I didn't get it. I didn't get it. It's his most Russian movie, and it's the one he made after leaving Russia, and he was kind of brokenhearted, but he couldn't continue to make movies the way he was making them and make them in a communist regime. It just wasn't going to work. So he shot this movie in Italy, and it's it's very much about him. It's... There's a Russian poet who's doing research abroad. He's looking at the life of a composer who killed himself. Oleg Yankovsky is the star of the film. And as the poet, he is following the path of this other Russian who is displaced from his country. And the more time he spends investigating Italy and poking around this other guy's life and sort of putting together the pieces of what happened to him and what broke his heart and why he killed himself when he finally went back to Russia... The, the more he realizes what he's left behind and what he can't have anymore now that he's not in Russia. And it's very much that I think the title of the film is very much about the, the way being Russian means wherever you are and whatever you're doing and whatever you know path you take in life, Russia is always in you and Russia is always a piece of you. The way Tarkovsky makes movies, you know, fog and rain and sound and and color and time are the stars of the movies. And the big set piece at the end of this film, if you want to be blunt about it, a guy carries a candle across a mineral pool in a spa. But that sequence is everything Tarkovsky's ever tried to do or say in movies. It's everything. It is literally the entire cycle of life and the struggle of what it is to be a human being embodied in this guy's determination, I'm going to light this candle, I'm going to get in this pool of water, and no matter with the wind or the water or whatever, I'm going to get to the other side of that pool with this candle lit, goddammit, and it's going to happen. And it's one take, it's nine minutes, that is not a movie that you then package and sell and put in the theater next to you know O'Hara's wife. Tarkovsky's movies are giant meals. I don't really go back to them very often. I, I get that big experience, and I love the craft of what he does. And it's not something that I willingly go back and experience over and over. It's very melancholy. It's very uh, contemplative. And I admire and respect that very much. But after watching the film, I will go to Wikipedia and I'm thinking, all right, I consider that I have a somewhat decent analytical brain for movies and cinema. And I grasp some of what he was going for, his longing for his home country and everything. But it just doesn't speak to me in that way that it speaks to other people. And I'm glad if it does for you, but uh, I certainly wouldn't call it a bad film. I just, I, I just maybe I have like this mental block when it comes to Russian cinema. And there's a chilly emotionalism that is not an, not an easy thing to tune into. Um, talk about a very different flavor of foreign, foreign language film. Our next title is uh, a French movie called Entre Nous. 1952, Benny Goodman, The Bunny Hop, and The Baby Boom. It was a time to forget the past and look to the future. From Dion Carries, the director of Peppermint Soda, comes the acclaimed motion picture, Entre Nous. Starring Isabelle Huppert as Lena, the determined realist. And Miu Miu as Madeleine, the incurable romantic. The true story of two women 
and their extraordinary friendship. They have everything, but it isn't enough. The stirring portrait of a dreamer and a survivor who are willing to risk it all. Here is an art house film where I, I will gladly get behind this. I was into this film immediately. I thought I knew precisely where it was going, and I was wrong. And man, do I enjoy that. This is nothing more, and I mean that and not as a slight, than a melodrama about two French housewives who build a friendship over the years. And it is a gorgeous 1942 uh, production design. Uh, both leads are excellent. I was fascinated by it. I think it's fantastic. This one, certainly, when it begins, you think it's going to be a certain movie. The early stuff is simply to kind of set a context for who she is and why she got married and how she ended up with this guy. And, you know, it could have been really any set of circumstances. It does not have to be those. But it's any set of circumstances where you just kind of feel cornered into, I don't hate this person. This isn't a bad marriage, but it's certainly not what I would have picked. But fine. All right. Here. This is my life. And then you do try to build a life and you try to find uh, somebody else to hold on to. And those friendships, especially between women, are tough to write about, I think, sometimes and, and tough to get right on film. And Diane Curse did a terrific job as writer-director here. And, you know, she was an actor first. She, I, I think, is a really, her, her film Peppermint Soda is getting revival right now around America. You can see it in theaters. Uh, we'll get to one of her films later on. Her only other 80s film is, is a film called A Man in Love, which I have not seen, but I've heard, I know it's a very well-regarded film. She's got a really strong voice, and I think that this this one in particular, especially for Huppert, Isabelle Huppert, I, I think, often can be chilly or distant on film or difficult to warm up to on film. And, and she's terrific here, as is Mew Mew. Oh, she is. They're both yeah, great. As it, well, how do you say? How do you pronounce that? Mew Mew. Mew. And she is phenomenal in this. I, they're they're wonderful together in this. It's a it's a pretty special, wonderful little movie. Now we move on to a very similar film, uh, much like <laughs> much like Entree New. Uh, the following film is about young people embracing their youth, uh, uh, finding joy, and having fun together. It is called Hot Dog the Movie. Looking for something interesting, something tasty. Satisfying. Oh boy. Well, now comes hot dog time. It's hot dog, the movie, the wildest, hottest, all stops off rock and roll over celebration of the new year. Hot dog, the fun craze, thrill seeking party. I've seen people for weeks anticipating, oh, they're going to get the hot dog, the movie, and they're going to shred it. Let me set a little context for this because hot dog, the movie, was a big deal to 13 year old Drew. Uh, because this movie had Playboy Playmates in it. Playboy was brilliant about what they did to promote movies. They would frequently do articles, sex in cinema, and they would just have a picture of a movie that had nudity in it. That was enough to send every 13 and 14-year-old boy in America looking for those movies on cable and at video stores and to make sure that they tried to see those movies for those scenes. Nothing telegraphed nudity more than casting Playboy Playmates in your movies. So Hot Dog the movie hit theaters and was sold on Shannon Tweed being in the movie. And boy, that sounds like a setup for the sleaziest of the Porky knockoffs. And it's actually kind of not. It's not very funny, but it has some decent actors in it. And we also have somebody who's really good at shooting 
skiing footage. Look at how big skiing was for 80s films. In particular, every douchebag in the 80s had to know how to ski. And it's because Warren Miller started shooting those ski videos that were, he kind of revolutionized the way people did it. And so all of a sudden, cameras were lighter. You could ski more with them. You could get the footage going down the hill. So that's why I think it was so big in the 80s. And this movie definitely leans on that. What I think saves it from being one of these, oh my God, it's another gross sex crime parade, is the main couple, the center of the film, the guy that picks up the hitchhiker and then the hitchhiker, they actually flirt for a few days. They take time to get to know each other and they kind of dance around each other. And then they finally get together and they hook up and it's just two young people who are on the road having sex. It's not teen sex comedies. There is a relative level of class to this one, even though it is uh, knee deep in boobs. That That's no lie. Plot wise, it's just, you know, the, the cool kids versus the snotty kids in a ski competition. Definitely not high comedy or a great film, but it's harmless, passable. There's one gross kind of rapey joke that is the turd in the punch bowl. But for the most part, the film feels like it's got its head on straight about this stuff. It's harmlessly horny and goofy and dumb and innocuous. That's a good word for it. Not very funny, though, but not like uh, as nearly as offensive as a lot of these teen sex comedies. Uh, I don't know. Will we agree on the next exploitation film? It was infamous throughout uh, my uh, middle school and high school years because it was about high school honor student by day, child of the streets by night. Her two worlds are about to collide. Her choice, her chance, her life. Rated up. What do you think about Angel? I think it's way more of a serial killer film than one would expect looking at that poster. The high school angle barely enters into it, except late in the film where the assholes from school. And then there's the cop who's kind of pushing to figure out who she is and, and what her story is and who she really is. And it's there, but that's not the, the main point. The main point is there's a serial killer killing hookers and Angel and her friends are the ones being targeted. And it's very much what they put to bed, the whole she's in high school and she's very young. It virtually becomes a vice squad. Read. The stuff with the serial killer is, oh my goodness, John Deal shows up as, as the bad guy and it's given way more sort of slasher movie attention than you would think. Uh, Angel has a sort of street family and the head of the street family is a transvestite played by Dick Sean. I got to say, it is not a Dick Sean performance I have seen in any other movie. And it kind of took me aback. He means it. This is not, he wasn't phoning it in. He wasn't treating this as, okay, I'm slumming it here. Dick Sean showed up. I mean, Donna Wilkes does what she can with a very simplistically written role. She's not bad, but there's not much there for her to work with. But the supporting cast, beyond Dick Sean, who is fun. Susan Tyrell chewing up the scenery like crazy with a cigarette in her mouth in every scene. Rory Calhoun as an, an old school uh, Western star who now just hangs out on the boat Sunset Boulevard or the Strip. And Is he crazy or is he just crazy like a fox? They're a lot of fun. And, and you seem in, in what is kind of a slightly sleazy movie. Yes, it definitely is sleazy in many ways. But there also seems to be like an affection for these L.A. misfits that – a lot an exploitation movie might not bother with. It's a weird character that they've created here where she has been on her own for so long 
that when the secret comes out, it the movie almost lurches into little girl who lived down the lane territory. Like, I'm sorry, how old were you? You were like, what, six? Like, her story is crazy about how she ended up by herself and then and she never let anybody know. And that's why nobody could ever go to the house. And- you know, as a 1984 uh, B-level, it's not boring. Uh, it's got a decent score by Craig Safin. It's shot by Andrew Davis, who would soon direct many more films. And it's infamous. It is an infamous poster. I think you can't really contend with 80s culture unless you contend with Angel at some point. All right. Well, our next one is from the director of a movie that we covered a little while ago called Only When I Laugh. I'm going to need you to tag in on the buddy system. They had a lot in common. I don't like you. No kidding. I don't like you either. They were both in love with other people. You're warm. You're beautiful. I have this problem with my self-esteem. The minute I turn away from a mirror, I think I'm short and fat. They each made a strong first impression, but something drew them together. What about you? Without my mom. I'm not interested. Forget it. I am not interested. Richard Dreyfuss, Susan Sarandon, Nancy Allen, and Gene Stapleton in The Buddy System, when love means always having to say you're sorry. Directed by Glenn Jordan, who would go on to be a ridiculously prolific TV director. This is a ridiculously flat rom-com with Richard Dreyfuss and Susan Sarandon. Good support by Nancy Allen and Gene Stapleton. The very first Will Wheaton you'll ever see. He had done a voice for uh, Secret of Nim, but this is his first, I think, on screen. Uh, This was an early screenplay by Mary Donahue, who would go on to write much better films like Beaches and Veronica Guerin, believe it or not. This is so tiresome and generic, it boggles the mind. Dreyfus plays a uh, postman who figures out that a kid is faking his residency so he can go to a better school than the school zone that he lives in. When he brings it to the kid's attention, instead of turning him in, he says, hey, I'm not going to turn you in. And the kid goes, cool. You want to bang my mom? You want to meet my single hot mom? And that sets off the wacky romantic comedy. This is the truant officer, single mom romance you've been waiting for. It takes, I would guess, 45 minutes too long to get where it's going. She hates him. She hates him. And then she warms up to him. And- oh, boy. And she hates him. And he's and he's he pretty hateable because he keeps going back to Nancy Allen, who's a drip. And I love Nancy Allen. So it takes a lot for me to hate her in a movie. But, boy, she's really awful in this. And then by the time he figures it out, oh, I'm with the wrong woman. And he goes back to her. It's the most unmotivated. Sure, you can come back into my life and everything's wonderful that you'll get from one of these. One thing I'm noticing, Drew, is that few things date as poorly as a bad romantic comedy. Social contracts and mores and ways to approach women change. Uh, example, in 1982, you could have two 18-year-olds saying, hey, if she says no, you give, you know, don't give up. Keep asking her out. You be persistent. You wouldn't write that today at all because that's stalking. As a a grown-up dating, you wouldn't hang out with a teenage boy hoping to nail his mom. You wouldn't do that in 2018 movie. (laughs) Dude, it's a dog. Lisa came into the room while we were watching it. She loves Richard Dreyfuss, Goodbye Girl, one of her all-time favorite movies. She sat through a good 35 minutes of this and went, I think I've seen this, but I will never remember this. Moving on. Now, God damn, this month sucks! Rob Cohen. This was Rob Cohen's second effort after Small Circle of Friends. He uh, rewrote a Larry Cohen script that might have been, it had to have been better than Scandalous. Frank Swetland, a TV anchorman. More after this. He was a star of primetime news. 
I don't need real stories from you. I've got real reporters for that. Until the scoop he was working on started working. Oh, splendid, Frank. On him. There's one person who can't afford a scandal. It's a man who makes his living by exposing people. Now his life is becoming a soap. You're supposed to report the news, not be the news. No, 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 no. It's positively <laughs> scandalous. Yeah, if you ever wondered if Larry Cohen and Rob Cohen collided, what would happen? Uh, the result is this, and it's not good. This is a British comedy. This is about British scandal sheets and what happens to somebody when they get caught up in a British scandal and they get their life splashed onto the tabloid pages. And it's supposed to be a wacky con man comedy with John Gilgood and Pamela Stevenson as a pair of wacky con men who target Robert Hayes, who is a TV celebrity. He tries to scam them because he's a guy who exposes scams and they scam him and he ruins them and then they ruin him again. And then his wife leaves and then the tabloids get upset and then there's a lot of yelling and John Gilgood shows up in weird costumes and Pamela Stevenson can't carry a movie. And that's scandalous. Well, there's also a large appearance by Bow Wow Wow who at the time was apparently very popular. You will also... <laughs> I And I loved I loved that they showed up and, dude, there's a shit ton of Bow Wow Wow in the movie. It's really kind of amazing that they got the performance they got. Feels like a limp farce broke out in the middle of a Bow Wow Wow concert. And I did notice, uh, blink and you miss him, Mr. M. Emmett Walsh, Robert Hayes was so snake bit after Airplane. Take this job and shove it. Airplane 2, trench coat, utilities, touched and scandalous. Uh, did he fire his agent every year? Uh, it's wow. Yeah, uh, he uh, will get to a good Robert Hayes movie next season with Katai. He's a very likable guy, and he's had a very good career, TV and film. But he kind of is the proto disappointing white guy who we're going to see as a template for the rest of this decade. The mediocre white guy at the center of everything. And other guys like Michael Keaton and Tom Hanks go on to sort of ride that archetype all the way to the top and they figure out ways to sort of jump off at the right point and reinvent it and become more interesting than that i feel like hayes could have starred in any of the movies that launched their careers man with run red shoe or gung-ho or night shift those are the movies that robert hayes should have been trying to make and i just don't understand why it didn't happen there's a difference robert hayes is likable michael keaton and tom hanks are innately charming we talked about robert hayes too much love the guy let's move on I was really looking forward to digging into this one because I'd never seen it, and it qualifies as the directorial debut of Catherine Bigelow, The Loveless. Here they come, as tough as they come. The Loveless. Which way are you coming from? It don't matter which way I'm coming from. It's which way I'm going to. We're going nowhere. Fast. If this keeps up, the gang's going to have to leave town. If there's any town left to leave. The Loveless. Hope you don't live where they're going next. I'm going to guess seeing the wild one was a formative experience for Catherine Bigelow. I wanted to put my fucking foot through the television watching this movie. I couldn't wait for it to end. And if you liked it even slightly more than I did, then I will cede to you because this to me felt like somebody very young and naive emulating a movie they like and not getting anything about what made it interesting. It's an art project. It's, it's Catherine Bigelow saw the wild one when she was little and something went bing and she needed to get that itch out dudes on motorcycles who look pretty 
who sulk around and terrorize a small town by pouting. Willem Dafoe is young and looks like he's from outer space and he's photographed like she is in love with him. This whole movie is built around sort of fetishy images and and it is all surface and style. And I feel like the ending, you know, we're going to get to the movie that you and I both love a little later this this decade called Near Dark by her. I feel like the ending for this movie, the whole movie kind of sits there just going idle, 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 idle. Nothing's happening. Nothing's happening. Idle, idle, idle. Oh, in the last 15 minutes. Oh, and it tries to roar to life. That ending feels like a dry run for what is undeniably the best sequence in Near Dark. Uh, we are going to continue in the art house department. This is Francois Truffaut's final film, Confidentially Yours. See, I'm a big Truffaut fan. Truffaut, for me, is a very important filmmaker and a guy who uh, kind of turned me on to world cinema. He was one of the guys whose work was very important to me when I was young. This film, knowing that it was his last movie, knowing that he died right after he, he released it, I'd always kept this film on a shelf as I'll get to it one day, but I, I want to have one unwatched Truffaut film. So for the purposes of the show, I broke out my final Truffaut film, and now I've seen everything he's made and in a way that's very sad. And it's fine. It's okay. It's I, I read the book as well. I went and I tracked the book down. It's by a guy named Charles Williams. Uh, it's called The Long Saturday Night, although now if you go buy it, it's called Confidentially Yours. And uh, it's a good, nasty little noir bit of business. Uh, and the film is a film's a strange adaptation because it is definitely faithful in terms of the big beats. Um, a local businessman who is murdered while he's hunting, a real estate agent who is out hunting at the same time, who has reason to shoot this guy in the face. And this guy gets shot in the face. And so the real estate agent is picked up. That agent's secretary is the one who then goes to work because she's convinced there's something else going on. What's weird about the adaptation is while it's clear that he adapted the book and that it is very much he's working from the bones of the book, it feels to me like the real reason he made it was he just loved Fanny Ardent and he just wanted to make a movie for her to show her off like a sports car. She always looks like she has a secret. She always looks like Truffaut whispered something to her right before the scene started shooting. And she's trying not to laugh about this other thing while she's playing the scene. She's just bemused by all of it. And while the book is not a comedy, and I wouldn't call the film a comedy, there is a dry sense of humor in how she interacts with what's going on. Uh, you could see that studios are, are very reluctant to release anything that they're super concerned about making big money because it's January. But we also get these like these castaway movies, the hot dogs, the angels, the buddy systems. But we're getting a lot of noteworthy foreign films. I mean, just this month alone, Tarkovsky, Fellini, Truffaut. Is this like when the only time that these films could find an audience at all in well, January? Well, I, I think part of it is the same thing that happens now. You have the Oscars where, you know, hopefully these films are getting some play as foreign language nomination titles, and then you can roll them out to the masses while there's at least some attention paid to them. So I think certainly the end of the year and the beginning of the year is when that conversation is a little bit more engaged. But yeah, this was this was kind of a clearinghouse and, and a hopeful moment where these films would find a little purchase because they're not up against the giant guns for the studios. I will now turn it over to you once more for a Fellini film, a weird, believe it or not, about a funeral cruise and all the fancy weirdos on it. It's called And the Ship Sails On.
It's a metaphor for like uh, refugees and uh, uh, migration. It's also uh, just plain playful. It's one of the most playful uh, Fellini films. There's no sound. You're not sure at first if that's like a fault or if that's what's actually happening. And you're watching these uh, passengers arrive for a cruise ship. And then gradually sounds become a little bit more realistic. And finally, it jumps into full color as they start to board the ship. But the device is that you have this this main character, Freddie Jones, this Orlando uh, character named Orlando, who's speaking directly to you, a journalist who is constantly talking about everybody else on the ship and what's going on, how everybody explains and that this is a trip to get rid of the ashes of a revered opera performer. And so all of these people are here to celebrate her life or leech off of her fame. The narration reminded me of, it almost felt like a satire of pre-show award shows, like who are you wearing? And, oh, look who's over there. It's the Duke and Duchess. And like, it, it almost felt like a satire of media. Playful is the word I keep coming back to because there is this sense that, and he lets you know that it's completely artificial. There is, um, there's an amazing moment in the film where he finally breaks the reality of this movie by doing this crazy tracking shot through the ship that then also goes behind the scenes of the ship so that you can see how they're making all of the function of the ship work. And it's this unbelievable set by Dante Ferretti, who does a lot of the Gilliam stuff and who I think is a genius. And Ferretti does live opera as well. And a lot, there's a lot of this that feels like it's drawing on live opera tradition, which is fitting based on whose funeral this is supposed to be. So there's levels upon levels of what he's playing with here and how he's playing. And if I knew more about Italian cultural history this movie would probably work more for me. As it is, I recognize that he is throwing things at targets that I don't necessarily recognize or respond to. The Tarkovsky, I can appreciate, but I never really got into. This one, I didn't entirely get, but I was pretty much fascinated by throughout. There's a few slow spots, but generally I was curious to see where it was going. And that leads us right into a fantastic film, Normally, I would see to you in the art house department, but man, I was truly blown away by a fantastic film called El Norte. United by family. Torn by injustice. Mama. Inspired by a dream called. El Norte. I, I would say El Norte is one of the most significant works of Central American or uh, South American cinema. So this is a very simple story about a Guatemalan brother and sister who are forced to leave their home and go on the long trek to the alleged salvation of America. Gripping, fascinating, endlessly watchable. I could have watched another hour of it. I thought it was excellent. This is 1984 that this movie came out. 1983 that it was made. And they've been working on it for a while. And they've been observing things. And obviously, we talked about the border. And we've talked about movies that have touched on this uh, already in this decade. This is a conversation that was being had. And El Norte, as a movie, if you watch this film, and your take after this movie is still a blanket, fuck them, put up a wall, keep people out. If that's still your take after you watch this, then you're genuinely not connected to people the same way I am. We are about different things as people. To me, this movie 
makes as eloquent and emotional and empathetic a case for why laws when it comes to immigration are a very difficult conversation to have because you're dealing with people's lives. You're dealing with people who are looking to survive. You're lo- you're looking exactly. at exactly. It's you, you hear about immigration talked about on the news show and it's all just a bunch of words because we were born here and how does it hardly affect us? You need to see these stories of a normal brother and sister and the, the misery that they're forced to go through. And if you can't come out of a movie like El Norte with some empathy for other people, you shouldn't watch art. You should you should see a psychiatrist. This movie could be remade tomorrow without changing one word of dialogue. This movie should should be re-released tomorrow and it should be required viewing if you're going to participate in the conversation that we're having right now. A movie like this is about creating the empathy in a situation that you may not believe you'll ever have empathy and for. And it's not any they don't leave Gregory Nava and Anna Thomas made this movie and they you would think that if the point is hey immigrants are people and we deserve more respect than like you would think that they would make it more exploitative to make it does this horror movie. But it's not. It's ups and downs and horrible things and moments of hope and moments of weakness and moments of strength. And it's an honest portrait. It certainly doesn't hold America up as the all-purpose answer. You know, there's a whole section of the film that takes place here that is about just the day-to-day life then of living here without papers, without being on the books, without being a real person. And what that does to you within a system. And my ex-wife, who uh, came from Argentina worked in immigration law. I saw people come through our home who were in all parts of this process. People who had come here legally, people who had come here illegally, people who were trying to figure out a, a reason to stay, people who could not go back or they would die. I heard tons of these stories. And uh, again and again, what I got from it and what I think El Norte is shot through with uh, underneath everything is that there is a promise that America made to the rest of the world for a long time that it really held up as this is what we are. This is who we are. The the ports are open. We want you. El Norte is about that dream and how it's sold. It's about the power of that beacon and how it calls to people. It's about how hard it is to make that thing come true. It's about what it costs sometimes once you're actually here. And all of that, I think, is baked in. So it's certainly not romantic about the idea that if somebody gets here, everything magically gets solved. I think it is very clear-eyed. If you have a heart, watch this film, and you will learn a little bit about the immigrant experience. And I'm glad that I did, and I highly recommend El Norte. Now, let's move on to one of my favorite Woody Allen films of the decade. I'll keep this short and sweet. If you are a fan of Woody Allen's uh, neurotic bickering banter, this is among his funniest films. And ironically, he has an absolutely wonderfully funny rapport with Mia Farrow. I have always been a huge fan of Broadway Danny Rose. I think this is one of his better films of the decade. Everybody on Broadway loves Broadway Danny Rose, a talent agent with a heart of gold. My hand to God, she's going to be at Carnegie Hall. But you, I let you have a now at the old price, okay? Which, which is anything you want to give me. So how come everyone in New Jersey wants to kill him? You'll wind up on a meat hook. A meat hook? A meat hook? Okay, I'll go first. Woody Allen, Mia Farrow. 
together in Broadway, Danny Rose, rated PG. It's a it's a clever premise. It's just a long story told around a lunch table. It's a bunch of old school Catskill comics, the guys that work the like the strip club circuit, those kinds of old school comedians sitting around a table one night telling stories about Danny Rose, who was this legendary agent. And he is the worst. Uh, he's the best, but he's the worst. And that's why they tell the stories about him. Like every one of his clients is a dog. He believes in the people that nobody else believes in. The moment he gets a client who's any good, they get poached by other agents. That's Danny. Danny is the eternal mensch. He's the guy who is always looking out for the little guy and trying to get him the better booking. And so they're all trading stories. And then one guy says, I have the best Danny Rose story of all time. And that's the movie. And the movie is the, the story that happens between him and, and this washed up sort of um, uh, lounge singer guy who is starting, who might get a bounce, who might have a rebound in the business, played by Nick Apollo Forte. Then there is a girl who he's having an affair with, and she gets caught up with Danny Rose and the career and where Lou's going to go. And it's that. And it's one long sort of crazy weekend that they spend together with Danny having to pose as her boyfriend to keep everybody out of trouble. Strikes me as Woody Allen saw Victor Victoria and said, all right, I'm going to borrow from that. I I just, I I feel like he probably sat around these deli tables and he heard these stories. And I have a George Clooney story that if you get me drunk enough, I'll tell you, but I'll never, ever be able to tell in any professional capacity. And I think if you work around showbiz long enough, you pick those up. You get those little stories and you put them in your pocket. And I love the premise of just a film where people start breaking them out about this fictional character. I'm often hot and cold on Mia Farrow. She is hilarious in this movie. She is fantastic. It might be her best comedic performance ever. It, this holds up as one of my uh, favorite Woody Allen films, probably overall. The next one that we get to is I love even more than this one. And I also, this is kind of in that era where he really aggressively was like, you know what? I like black and white and I don't care if you don't. I'm going to keep making films this way. That's just how it is, folks. Now we will close out with a weird comedy starring two very funny men that the studio clearly did not know what to do with because it is sort of an atonal mess and sort of kind of endearing. Let's talk about Charles Grodin and Steve Martin in The Lonely Guy. Now, the tender, heartbreaking story of a man doomed to go to bed with his bed. First time lonely guy? He didn't know it. How many in your body? I'm alone. But he was a lonely guy. And he wasn't alone. Morris, where are you? They were everywhere. Marilyn, my love! Where are you, boy? He tried his best to meet women. Do you want to go to dinner? I'm a man. Anything was better than sleeping alone. But he was still lonely. So lonely that he wrote about it. And then things began to change. We got a call from Playboy. They want you to pose with the bunny of the month. Could you just put to Jimmy... He became popular. Sure. Real popular. And best of all, he met a wonderful girl. Hang in there. Lonely guys don't stay lonely forever. Steve Martin. Uh, Is this the first Lutheran? No. Third Methodist. The Lonely Guy. You know, for years I got this, I I had this in my head that this was also one of the Carl Reiner, uh, Steve Martin films. And I think it's because that whole run of movies there was largely Carl Reiner. 
Obviously, it's not. It's Arthur Hiller. And it was written by Ed Weinberger and Stan Daniels, um, who I adore because I am one of the biggest taxi fans you're ever going to meet. I love these guys. Great, great sitcom writers. And they had they had adapted uh, a screenplay by Neil Simon, who was adapting a book called The Lonely Guy's Guide to Dating. And the the book was one of those little paperback, half cartoon, half observational. This This is like a... Like a joy of sex kind of thing, which we'll get to next season, which is like, we're going to make a movie about this popular book that has virtually nothing to do with the book. Yeah, and I feel like the the entire thing is the it's creating the archetype of the lonely guy and then being as absurdist as possible with it. And it's weird watching uh, Martin, who is very good at absurdist humor. Martin's really good at selling a joke that's completely weird for the sake of weird. And we talked about how in Man with Two Brains, that movie has such a great sense of a sort of cartoon elastic reality. And he can pull that off. Arthur Hiller, not as nimble at doing it. So it's a weird mix. Carl Reiner knows how to infuse weirdness throughout an entire movie. And it always bounces back. This is a movie that like, makes jokes about people literally committing suicide in front of your face and is very sometimes brutally unkind to its lead character. Half the movie was trying to be a uh, somewhat broad romantic comedy. And then half the movie is trying to be like dark bleak comedy. And it doesn't always mesh, but there are some great moments between Charles Grodin and Steve Martin, uh, apparently a good portion of which was improvised where they're just whining about being lonely. And some of their dialogue is just so weirdly funny. I, I don't think it holds together as a whole, but I still like it. It suffers from that weird syndrome where if you go look at the poster for the film, it has 54 blocks of text on the poster. No poster that has 54 blocks of text is ever going to be for a good movie. This is basically the end of the sexual revolution, and you're looking at the the rise of sort of AIDS anxiety. And so dating and and sex and everything else was getting more complicated and weird. And, and people were starting to pull back again. It was not the freewheeling late seventies anymore. And so comedies were trying to figure out how to keep up with that and how to, how to tap that. And it's hard when you're making a comedy about the zeitgeist and you're trying to like be of the moment and precise. And this is what it's like right now. And uh, maybe, you know what drew you, you've nailed something that I think was very prevalent at the time. And we need to like, you like spotlight it when it pops up in other films. And it is the, the arrival of the sensitive man. It was literally people like Phil Donahue saying women like sensitive men and people saying, Oh really? So you all of a sudden it's Steve Martin being wistful and it's Burt Reynolds trying to do the man who loved women. You know, sometimes the men are sensitive too leads to good stuff. And we'll get to some of those films, but a lot of times uh, when men are sensitive too leads to either terrible films like men who loved women or half good, half very confused films like the lonely guy. And I think Judith Ivy is a lovely actress who has zero chemistry with Steve Martin in this movie. And for that relationship to be fun or playful, what happens when you cast Bernadette Peters opposite him? You look at what happens when you cast Judith Ivy opposite him and it's chemistry. It's just one of those things where this movie doesn't have the right connection. So yeah, even that part of it, which should for Martin, who I think, by the way, he doesn't get enough credit for this, but Steve Martin is one of the few of the truly wacky SNL generation comics, who is also a consistently credible romantic lead in films. I just think it's a misfire, but not an atrocious misfire because Steve Martin, Charles Grodin, Judith Ivey make it funny, even when it's messy. 
So, folks, uh, we we are, as I said, kicking off our fifth season, and I want to thank everybody who supports us via the Patreon or everybody who is a listener via the regular podcast feed. Everything you guys do pushes us to try even harder. So thank you so much. Uh, We'd love the response to the Best of 83 episode and to 1983, which was a hard year in general to do. Uh, As always, please share word of the show, play the show for people, introduce people to the show. If you aren't a Patreon supporter yet, consider donating $5, $10, $15 a month. makes a huge difference, and it allows us to continue putting together what we think is turning into genuinely one of the most exciting and fulfilling things we've ever done. Yeah, I'm looking forward to 1984. I'm willing to bet that January might be the weakest month of the year, but still a fun episode. I want to send out a podcast recommendation to a new one I discovered called God Awful Movies. It is hilarious. It is three guys and sometimes guests, and each week they dissect and destroy a Christian movie. It is really funny. And uh, check those guys out. God awful movies. Next time, Tom Selleck's got larceny in his pants. Dudley Moore's got murder in his heart. And Michael Caine's a goddamn pervert. When is a Stanley Kubrick film not a Stanley Kubrick film? You'll find out when we got to cut loose for February of 1984. <laughs> 